0: Our scripture text today is taken from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, to chapter 12, verse 21. Also going to be found in your pew Bibles, pages 816 and 817. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence? which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together.
1: Father, it would be so easy for us to uh, decide already that the first half of this passage, which has to do with arguments about the Sabbath, has nothing to do with our lives. And that the second half of the passage, which is a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. It's hard to understand that that doesn't have anything to do with our lives. So, Father, I, I, I'm just acknowledging how easy it is and acknowledging our weakness, how, how prone we are to checking out and thinking either that it's not relevant at all, these kinds of things, or at best it's just kind of this intellectual theoretical thing that doesn't really connect with our lives, but Father, you have a word of life for us from both halves of this passage this morning. Your heart is beating very loudly in both halves, and we're not going to see your heart. We're not going to hear it. We're not going to love what we see. We're not going to recognize its beauty We're not going to be convicted by your kindness. We're not going to be drawn out to the Lord Jesus unless your spirit comes now. And so that's what I'm asking. You put your spirit upon your servant, the Lord Jesus, to carry out his mission of bringing justice and proclaiming justice to the world that had turned against you. And now this morning I ask that you would do it again upon all who are here that we might see the Lord Jesus as the Spirit takes what belongs to Him and uh, of His glory and shows that glory to us. And 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 I pray that not only for those who are my brothers and sisters already this morning, but also for those who are not yet joined to your Son. I pray that you would pour your Spirit out as the giver of life in Christ this morning upon them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, shortly before Christmas, I watched a film is a short film uh, on something called the Overview Effect. And the Overview Effect is this term that researchers have coined to describe the experience that astronauts have when they first see the Earth from space. And What happens to them? It was a very interesting film. Uh, it was a whole series of astronauts who were both uh, Apollo astronauts and shuttle astronauts who were interviewed on this film. And, you know, that's quite a span of time, for one thing, okay? From 1968 all the way uh, forward into uh, just a few years ago, right? And yet what was, what was interesting in their descriptions of their experiences was they were all, there were two common threads that this term overview effect is, is uh, used to describe. Two common experiences that the astronauts have when they first see the Earth from space. Experience number one is they are utterly overwhelmed by the recognition suddenly that the Earth, their planet where they have been living, right, it, seeing it as a whole. In other words, not just Americans, they don't just live in North America, but they see as they're orbiting the earth, they see the whole picture of the planet. They see the macrocosm of the planet. They see, if you will, the oneness of the planet, that it's a unified whole and it's really big. And the second strand of their experience, you probably already anticipate, which is they, 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 they recognize now their place in that big story, and what's produced in them is, is awe and wonder. And, of course, none of them would acknowledge God in the, in the video. Um, but it was a good reminder to me that the human heart is made to worship. <laughs> the human heart is made to admire things that are bigger than we are. And I'm not an astronaut, at least not yet. Um, but my experience of Matthew 12 uh, has been very much... Uh, like this overview effect, just a, a sense of awe and wonder uh, from seeing uh, the heart of God, the story of the heart of God that Matthew uh, 12 uh, tells us. I just, I just am so taken and want to, to uh, share this with you this morning, so taken by the big story that Matthew 12 celebrates and that's on display what, what captivates me so much uh, from this chapter is the, is, the, is the way in which, what makes me want to stand in awe, if you will, beneath this passage is, is the story that it tells of the heart of God and, and particularly the way in which Jesus himself is the revealer of the heart of God. So it's very much like John 1.18, right? No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, who's in the bosom of the Father, He has what? Explained Him. And the very same thing, very much the same thing, is going on in Matthew 12. And there's two things, and these will be our headings this morning. There's two ways in which Jesus, I think in our passage, reveals the heart of God. First, he explains the heart of God to us, and secondly, he embodies the heart of God for us. Now, the reason I think this is so important, the pastoral kind of street value for this for me, is that the longer I'm a Christian, certainly the longer I'm a pastor, uh, I'm increasingly convinced that, that, that the greatest power for changing our hearts is seeing God's heart. The greatest power for change, and I, and I say this, this is true both for the Christian and the non-Christian. The greatest power for changing our hearts is seeing God's heart, and that's true for the Christian. I mean, my my brothers and sisters, what is it that draws you out? What is it that draws you out to pursue growth? What is it that draws you out toward God? You know what it is more than anything else, the longer you're a Christian, it's seeing how God's heart has been turned toward you in Jesus Christ. And what is it, my non-Christian friend, what is it that ultimately moves somebody from a place of unbelief to belief? Sure, there are intellectual objections, and those are important. Listen, I had them too. I, I, I understand them. I feel their importance. But I also know this, and I want to say this to you, as those who might be on the outside of Christianity, um, I want to say to you as someone who was once there alongside you, I want to say, and who had intellectual questions and objections about the gospel, I want to say to you that ultimately what it is both experientially and theologically from the Bible that moves somebody uh, from a place of unbelief to belief is the kindness of God. It's the seeing the heart of God. There. So, so this the the importance of seeing the heart of God as Jesus reveals it to us is just supreme for both the Christian and the non-Christian. And so, this morning, let's look at uh, because I believe we need the same medicine whether we're a Christian or a non-Christian. I want to spend the morning being awed uh, by the heart of God with you, in terms of how Jesus makes it visible. So, first, we're going to look at the first half of our passage how Jesus explains the heart of God to us uh, as the Lord of the Sabbath, and secondly, how He embodies the heart of God for us as the servant of the Lord in uh, verses 15 through 21. So let's look first at how Jesus explains the heart of God to us in uh, these passages, these two examples about the Lord of the Sabbath. You know, it's interesting. For years, every Bible that I've used has uh, ended chapter 11 of Matthew on one page, and I've had to turn the page to get to chapter 12. And so for years, okay, I'm just confessing this, for years I have failed to connect the end of chapter 11 with the beginning of chapter 12. Chapter 11, it was, we spent a lot of time on this in the month of December. Chapter 11 the, ends with Jesus presenting himself to the world as the Lord who is the rest of his people, right? He not only gives that rest, but he gives that rest to those who come to him because he is their rest, right? And what happens in chapter 12? Well, Matthew is a very shrewd arranger of material. He's a careful thinker. What happens in chapter 12? The very next things that happen that he reports that Jesus does are he's involved in two disputes about the Sabbath, which is the day of rest, And so the theme of rest is continuing on into into chapter 12. Now, I know that arguments, disputes about the Sabbath uh, might feel, and probably do feel, to many of us, very arcane and very irrelevant, having no connection with our lives, okay, in the 21st century as Americans. But I can tell you, and you you don't have to spend much time in the New Testament reading, especially the Gospels, you know... That, that those disputes were anything but arcane and irrelevant for the first century Jew. These are very important issues. And we say, oh, well, there you go again. This preoccupation with technicalities. Friends, if that's what you think the point of the Sabbath is, you, you've missed the boat. You see, while the Pharisees may approach the Sabbath that way, you notice Jesus is not simply responding to what the Pharisees see him doing on the Sabbath. He is, in both of these encounters, initiating them. He, is, he knows that there's a problem in the way that people think about the Sabbath, and so he is moving. He's the one who, on the Sabbath, leads his disciples in the grain fields, knowing that they are hungry, okay? So he is not in the sense of wanting to pick a fight, but wanting to make plain who he is, and therefore having an opportunity to explain the true meaning of the Sabbath, what it means for him to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And then again, after the first at the, the first exchange ends in the field, in verse 8, he enters the synagogue, right? The same synagogue of the Pharisees, and he knows that they're going to challenge him. So What I want you to see is that this is very important, not just to first century Jews, but also to Jesus. Jesus is meaning to take hold of the Sabbath, which was at the very center of Jewish identity. And he is not only wanting, in this passage, to lay claim to its meaning, but also to identify himself as its fulfillment. Now that is so important. Uh, by the first century, uh, because you know, if you read the two places where the Ten Commandments are found together in the Old Testament, Exodus twenty and Deuteronomy five, you'll notice this when you get to the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment. The longest explanations in both uh, in both uh, units of the Ten Commandments are are given in connection with the fourth commandment. So that's very significant. Uh, It may not feel like that to us. We might want to have a longer elaboration in some of the other commandments. But you know, when God gave the law, it was the Sabbath commandment that got the most elaboration. And and therefore, by the first century, when Jesus is ministering on the earth, a very elaborate set, there had been a lot of thinking about what was permissible to do on the Sabbath and what wasn't what constituted work that would have been a violation of the fourth commandment and what didn't constitute work that would have violated the fourth commandment and Jesus it's into that environment and a lot of the rules as you can see here are very technical and they seem crazy to us Uh, But in their genesis, they they were an attempt to put a fence around that fourth commandment to avoid any violations of it. Jesus steps, leads his disciples right into that environment, and immediately, right, he demonstrates in these two encounters, he's demonstrating that that misunderstandings, and, and this is a very important point, that misunderstandings of the Sabbath grow out of and reflect a misunderstanding of the heart of God. It's not a technical thing for him. It is, do you know God or do you not know God? Are you misrepresenting who God is in the way that you're interpreting the Sabbath? Or are you worshiping the true and living God in the way that you think about the Sabbath? To misunderstand the Sabbath for Jesus, as he shows us here, is to misunderstand the heart of God. So there's two senses in which Jesus says He has this amazing statement of verse 8, right? For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And as we think about this this uh this role that Jesus has that he's claiming for himself, asserting for himself that he has the authority to proclaim what the Sabbath is, that he is the definitive authoritative interpreter of the Sabbath's meaning, of that portion of the law. Uh, what, what I want you to think about is that he is showing that he is Lord of the Sabbath in the sense that he is Lord over the Sabbath. Right? He, he, he gets to say what the Sabbath means and what it doesn't mean. And you'll notice in both of these episodes, there's a charge that's brought against him, right, for doing something that is allegedly unlawful, right? You see, the Pharisees say it uh, in verse 2. They say, they see his disciples picking heads of grain on the on the Sabbath and eating them, and and they charge him. They say, Look, they come to him because they know as the teacher he's responsible for his disciples. Look. Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, when you read that, you immediately should be suspicious. Just because someone says something is unlawful doesn't mean it's unlawful, right? Okay, that's important. Just have that in your mind. And the same thing happens when Jesus goes into the synagogue, right? They, they're going to ask him a question. They know, they know he's going to say, yes, we should heal this man on the Sabbath, But they ask him the question because they assume that it's unlawful to do that in the same way that they assume that the disciples are acting unlawfully and therefore Jesus by extension as their teacher is also violating the Sabbath by condoning their plucking of the heads of grain. So in both these episodes, there's a charge. And in both these episodes, Jesus comes back and says, not only have I not violated the Sabbath, but you don't understand the Sabbath at all. Look at how he responds to them in verse 3. He says, Have you not read what David did? Verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? And then verse 7. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's quoting Hosea 6 6. In other words, Jesus comes back to the charges. In both situations, and then later on in verse 12, he says, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, right? In both situations, he is coming back and saying to the Pharisees, you don't even understand the law that you are accusing me of violating. And the reason you don't understand is because you don't understand the heart of God. Now, those are big claims. And Jesus does not let up here. In verse 6... After he, he, he begins, he begins in verse 3 in responding to their charge. He says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? This is a story. Jesus is referring to a story in 1 Samuel chapter 21. When David was fleeing Saul, he goes to Nob where the tabernacle had been temporarily and he receives the bread of the presence from the high priest. Now, the bread of the presence, there were 12 loaves. They were were fresh loaves of bread. They were to be put on a table in the tabernacle, and they were to represent the 12 tribes of Israel and their presence always before the Lord. And that bread was changed out on the Sabbath by the priests, every Sabbath. And only the priests could eat the old bread. But in that story, David receives the bread from the high priest and shares it with the men who follow him. And Jesus is talking about that story here. He says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? So precedent number one, right? Verse 5, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Now, he's, you know, scare quotes around profane, right? And it's scare quotes around uh, what David did as well as being unlawful. Uh, Jesus is, you think up at this point that what Jesus is going to do, that he's saying, listen, I have authority on the basis of what, what, what my disciples did Fits under these Old Testament precedents. You think, when you get to verse 5, the end of verse 5, that Jesus is going to essentially be arguing that those, those examples, that what Jesus has done fits under those examples as if they were the authoritative precedents for what he's going to do. As if his authority to act were somehow derived from how David acted. how the priests acted. Well, you think that until you get to verse 6. And then Jesus says something totally shocking in verse 6. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And see what He's doing is very radical. Number one, because he's in Galilee when he says this. I mean, think about where he is. He's standing in a grain field in Galilee. (laughs) The boondocks, as far as the temple was concerned. And he is standing there saying... Something greater than the temple in Jerusalem where God has caused his name to dwell, where God's presence is in the Holy of Holies. Jesus is saying something greater than that, greater than the Holy of Holies, is here in Galilee. Well, what is that? It's him. It's the presence of God and the person of God in Jesus Christ right there. Now, how does that flow out of what he's just said in verses 3 through 5? Well, it means that what Jesus is claiming for himself is something that only God could claim for himself. He is claiming ultimate authority. He's claiming to be the interpreter of the law with the same authority that the lawgiver possesses. And he is saying, my actions are lawful and are the fulfillment of the Sabbath. They, my actions fulfill the true meaning. Not only are my actions not a violation of the Sabbath, but they fulfill the Sabbath's true meaning. Not on the basis of David's precedent and not on the basis of the priest's precedent, but on the basis of my own authority. You see, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this is one of many, right? We've seen many of them in the Gospel of Matthew where many assertions that anyone who knows even just a little bit about the Old Testament will immediately recognize as an unmistakable assertion of deity by Jesus. He is claiming to be the lawgiver. He is claiming to be the one who has meaning, who, who, who can rightfully uh, explain the meaning of the Sabbath and in that sense, be the Lord of the Sabbath and therefore be authoritative to declare guiltless not only himself, but those who also act on the Sabbath in accordance with his teaching. He's claiming rightful authority over the Sabbath. That is a massive thing. He, he, guys, he is, the Sabbath may be on the periphery of what we think is important. It was not for Jesus. It was not for a first century Jew. It was not for Israel's identity. He is, it's like he's stepping right into the middle of what it means to be an Israelite, and he's saying, I'm in charge of this whole thing. Only Yahweh can speak like that. And then he says in verse 7, he quotes Hosea 6.6, which is a very interesting verse. If you look at it in context, notice uh, Jesus says, hey, listen, you don't understand the first thing. If you had known what this means, and this is Hosea 6.6, and it's the Lord speaking in Hosea 6.6. You can look it up later. It's the Lord speaking. And Jesus is saying, if you'd understood what God meant in Hosea 6.6, you would not have accused me or the disciples of violating the Sabbath. And you wouldn't, fast forward, you also wouldn't assume that healing a man on the Sabbath was a violation of the Sabbath. You would know, if you'd understood the heart of God, that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Because in Hosea 6.6, the Lord says, speaking of Israel's the way Israel did its religion, he says, I desire mercy literally steadfast love rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings in other words what god is saying in hosea 6:6 6, 6, that jesus is picking up here is that it's not the externals that god is aiming at when god commands the sacrifices which he did command in the old testament What he was going for, he wasn't going to be satisfied just with the sacrifice. The sacrifice was not an end in itself. The sacrifice was to be a picture of the heart of the worshiper being given to God. So in other words, the meaning of the law according to Jesus is that our hearts would resemble God's. He has given steadfast love and mercy to his people. And what God wants is for us to give that steadfast love back to him. He wants us to know him. That's what he wants our obedience to be the story of, not earning his favor, but reflecting his favor. And his point is, you have to understand the Sabbath in the same way. The Sabbath is about knowing the heart of God, what matters to God, what he loves, what he desires. And so we come to the idea of Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath in the sense that he is the Lord who is the Sabbath, the one who fulfills the Sabbath. And and that, in order to understand that, we need to look at the Ten Commandments. So I want you to look with me very quickly at Exodus 20. And then we're going to go to Deuteronomy 5. So let's go to Exodus 20. I told you before that that these are the two places where the Ten Commandments are collected together. It's a good Bible trivia question. Everyone knows Exodus 20? Deuteronomy 5 often slips through the cracks. There you go. Okay? So the Sabbath, uh, the Fourth Commandment, is in verses 8 through 11 of Exodus 20. Uh, It's on page 61 in your pew Bible, page 61. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Now notice, verse 11 now is the reason for the Sabbath. This commandment is supposed to tell a story to Israel. Through this commandment, Israel is supposed to remember a story. What is the story? For in six days, why should you keep the Sabbath? Why should you all rest? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In other words, in Exodus 20, the the fourth commandment is explained in terms of God's identity as creator. What what grounds the Sabbath is that God is the creator, right? And we saw a few weeks ago that when it comes to rest, God is is the first one to rest, and he is the one who is our rest, right? On the seventh day, he rested. He rested from his work of creation, not because he was exhausted by creation, but because he was satisfied. With his creation everything that he had made was as he intended it to be and so the rest was not a function of god's exhaustion or his fatigue but of his satisfaction in his creation you know at the end of genesis 1 god saw all that he had made and he said it was very good and so god steps back from the universe and all the relationships in the universe and says with the satisfaction of a master artist and says, it is what I want it to be. And Israel is on the other side of the fall when it receives this commandment. And so what does this story tell them? Oh, so many things. But think about what this reveals about the heart of God. What it means, friends, is... What, what, think about what it says about the heart of God That into the fabric of his creation The eternal uh, living God That into the fabric of his creation right? A God who in the order of his being As it were Is separated from us by an infinite distance I mean he's that much greater than we are And yet And, 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 so, and so when he creates he owns the entire universe And yet for this God, with his glory and his ownership over everything, including the lives of his creatures and everything that his creatures use and enjoy, all of it is his stuff. He'd be perfectly entitled to have made human beings to work 24-7 for his glory, right? That That would be totally appropriate for him. But to think, think about what it says about his heart that into the very fabric and rhythm of his creation, he has woven this rest of the Sabbath as a testimony to the kind of God he is. Friends, God doesn't make slaves. God doesn't make slaves. He's telling people who just got brought out of slavery and who are still in bondage to their sin, that he is not like Pharaoh and that he is not like sin. He doesn't make slaves. He frees them. The Sabbath is about God's generosity. Now go with me to Deuteronomy 5, which is 40 years later. Forty years later, as Israel is now coming out of the wilderness and poised to enter the promised land, right, finally, and the the Ten Commandments are given through Moses again uh, to the the generation coming out of the wilderness. And uh, starting at verse 12, uh, we come to the Fourth Commandment again. Observe the Sabbath day. This is on page 150 in your pew Bibles, by the way. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Now notice, here now is the logic. Remember in Exodus 20, the logic, the foundation of the Sabbath was God's identity as creator. Notice now a different rationale for the Sabbath has been supplied. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord, God, Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Well, notice, this isn't disagreeing with Exodus 20. This is saying the Sabbath is about more than the fact that God doesn't make slaves. It's saying that God rescues slaves. And the Sabbath is a story of Think, think about what this tells us about the heart of God, right? Is that, is that God is resolved to restore what has made, been made wrong, what has been lost. He is a God who is resolved to make right all that has been made wrong because of our rebellion against him. That he comes to those who have been enslaved to sin and he comes to rescue them. And the Sabbath is to be the story, not just of the rest with how things were in the beginning, but also is to tell the story to us. And we are to remember that story of how the Lord is the rescuer, that one day God is going to do for the entire cosmos and every person who trusts in Jesus Christ, ultimately the same thing on the macro scale that he does for this man in the synagogue with a withered hand on a micro scale. You see, what Jesus does is he says to that man, you see, a withered hand is not the way a hand is supposed to be. That's wrong. A paralyzed hand is not the way that a hand is supposed to be. That needs to be set right. That is a picture of the entire span of humanity and the entire cosmos because of sin. And what Jesus does in that encounter, he says... As God himself present there? He says, now, let me show you the heart of God. I am about making right what sin has ruined. Let me give you a window into the rescue that I'm going to bring to the entire cosmos. He says, stretch out your hand. And what happens to the hand? It's restored. The way a hand is supposed to be. Friends, in the power of the same spirit that clothed Jesus, right? Today, God says to every one of us, right? Stretch out your heart to me. Stretch out your heart to me. And I will make it. I will rescue your heart. I will make it what it's supposed to be. And Jesus Christ, I will restore it to what it is supposed to be. That is who I am. And we know that God is so inclined that his heart is that great. Now, By the way, let me just say this. Do you see now why Sunday matters so much? Do you see why the Lord's Day is so important for Christians, right? Because of the resurrection of the Lord, right? The Christian Sabbath is now Sunday. Right, because it's the resurrection of the day. Jesus laid in the tomb on the, the old Sabbath and rose from the dead on the first day of the week. So that is now our day of worship and rest. But do you see now why it's so important? Because it me, it's, it's designed, it's a gift from God to tell us about who he is, that he is the rescuer, that he doesn't make slaves, he delivers them. And what this day is to be about in worship and in our learning together and in our fellowship together is our day, our time together and with our families and with our friends should be echoing those two themes. The Lord's Day is so important. And look at this illustration that Jesus gives us. Let's go back to Matthew 12 now. I just find this so fascinating. You know, how do we ultimately know that Why do we have any assurance that what I said uh, or what God said uh, to Israel uh, in Exodus 20 about the reason for the Sabbath or again in Deuteronomy 5 about the reason for the Sabbath that he doesn't make slaves that he's a rescuer of slaves that he's going to come and restore all things and make them the way that they are supposed to be. What assurance do we have that he's actually going to do that? I mean, he said that to Israel, but what about us? Well, I think we get a very strong clue from Jesus in the illustration that he uses in verses 11 and 12 when he's in the synagogue. He looks at these men who have presented the man with the withered hand to him and said, hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus looks at them and asks a rhetorical question, right? He says, listen, what man among you, this is the power of answering a question with a question. He says, what, which one of you who has a sheep? In other words, he's addressing them. Notice this. He's addressing them as shepherds. Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Now, that's a rhetorical question. Every single one of them would. He knows the answer is no one would leave their sheep in a pit. Now maybe maybe they wouldn't do it because it would be economic reasons, but but whatever it is, he knows, he knows, right, that 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 they would all, every single one of them, if their sheep, if they were a shepherd and one of their sheep were in the pit on the Sabbath, that they would get down on their hands and knees and they would lay hold of the sheep and they would pull it out to rescue it from the pit. Why does he know that? Because he knows that everyone knows that sheep don't belong in pits. Right? And men and women and children don't belong in sin. They don't belong under the wrath of God. They don't belong in a lifestyle that dismisses the glory of God. They don't belong. That is not what God made men for. Sheep in a pit have to be rescued because they don't belong in a pit. And Jesus is telling us a story. Can't you just tell when you hear that story? The one who is telling that story that he's describing his own ministry, isn't he? That is the microcosm of Jesus' ministry. Sheep don't belong in a pit, so they're rescued by men, by sinful men. Sinful men know that sheep don't belong in a pit, and so they're willing, even in their sin, to rescue the sheep. Well, then how much more God, how much more the heart of God would be willing to rescue one of his image bearers who doesn't belong in sin, and to restore this person from what sin's consequences have been for this person, even on the Sabbath. See, this is a story of God's heart. Look at what Jesus says in verse 12, of how much more value is a man than a sheep. Friends, I want you to hear that. When Jesus says that, I want you to hear that as God saying that because that's exactly what's happening there. This is God saying loud and clear to every one of us that people matter, right? People matter. And it's even more than that people matter to God. It's that sinners matter to God. You see that? Sinners matter to God. You see, what do we know that Jesus, when he's talking about these shepherds, these human shepherds who would be willing to rescue their sheep from the pit, that they'd be willing to get down, to stoop down and lay hold of the sheep and pull it out. Friends, we know that the one who is telling that, using that illustration, is the good shepherd. And later in his ministry, he's going to say that he is the good shepherd, meaning he is the best shepherd. And what defines him as the good shepherd is that he's willing to lay his life down for sheep, not just to stoop down, but to hurl himself into the pit where his sheep have fallen, and in that pit with them, right, to identify with them and to lift them out of the pit that they have fallen into because of their sin, to literally exchange places with them, to go to the bottom of the pit that our sin has dug and to bear all of its consequences, to get beneath us on the cross, right? To get beneath us and all the consequences of our sins, and it is on the shoulders of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, friends, that you and I and anyone among the nations is rescued. That is the heart of God, Jesus is saying. It is a wonderful thing. That is the story of the Sabbath, and they don't have a clue. You know, we saw in Deuteronomy 5 that God said, the reason you should celebrate the Sabbath is because I came to you when you were slaves in Egypt and by my mighty hand and my outstretched arm I rescued you. Friends, it is by Jesus' mighty hands and outstretched arms on the cross that you and I are brought out of the pit of our sin and all of its consequences by the power and the heart of God. That is the story of the Sabbath. Sabbath. That is how Jesus fulfills the Sabbath for us. Now, if you want to think about how that applies, it applies to Christians and to non-Christians equally. Friends, what I said at the beginning of the message is still true. What is going to draw you out to pursue growth? If you're a Christian and you are just kind of lukewarm about getting to know Jesus better, serving Him, growing in obedience, there may be areas of sin in your life as a professing Christian, that you are not yielding over to Jesus. You are trying to keep secret in your own life, and you know that you are in violation of his will, and you continue to paper it over, and so you avoid him, and you avoid other Christians. Friends, what is going to make you, what is going to draw you out of that pit? What is going to make you, what is going to break your heart what is going to propel you forward to, to serve Him more faithfully and more passionately? I'll tell you what it is. It's coming again and remembering what his heart actually looks like for you. You will not, your heart will not be turned toward God in the pursuit of growth until and unless and only to the degree that you see. And continue to look at how mightily the Lord's heart has been turned toward you in Jesus Christ. That's how you grow. That's why it matters what the heart of God looks like to you as a Christian. Same thing is true for you as uh, our non-Christian guests this morning. What is it ultimately that is going to break your heart over your own sin? (laughs) Well, Paul says in Romans, to the point where you, it's, it's like in my own life, right? This was my posture toward God. Don't you call me a sinner? That is so outrageous. You know what, you know what? You know what turned that clenched fist into open hands and bended me? It was exactly what Paul says in Romans 2 4. He says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's when I suddenly saw, and the only reason I saw it is because God showed it to me in his mercy. When I saw that what the cross was about and the news and the message of Jesus was about was the kindness of God toward me as a sinner who'd been a rebel against God. When I saw how good God was, that was when I was willing to admit how bad I had been. So, friends, you see God's heart. You see that he's not a slave maker. He's a slave deliverer. And all of that is the truth about God, and we know it's the truth about God because Jesus not only told it to us, but Jesus lived it in his life and death and resurrection. And now this morning, in the the power of the same spirit by which he carried out his ministry, he now presents himself to you as the true bearer of God's heart toward you, and you are under obligation before God to embrace Him and to respond to Him. So I pray that you will. And you should do that also because Jesus, secondly, and the second point is much shorter than the first. Secondly, Jesus embodies the heart of God for us as the servant of the Lord. And this is what verses 15 through 21 are about. And you notice, okay, Jesus is talking about himself and talking about the heart of God in verses 1 through uh, 14. And then Matthew uh, transitions in uh, verse 15 uh, to explain to us that after Jesus realized that the Pharisees were going to try to destroy him now because he had healed this man on the Sabbath, Jesus withdraws because it's, it's not time for the decisive conflict with the authorities yet. He still has a lot of ministry to unfold. And, and, and Jesus, Matthew says that Jesus withdrew and many followed him, and that he did this, verse 17. This was to fulfill, Jesus' withdrawing, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then what Matthew does, friends, is he quotes Isaiah 42, 1 through 3. This is the longest quote of the Old Testament in Matthew's gospel. And Matthew quotes the Old Testament a lot. And so this is very important to Matthew. And what this passage is, is one of the four what, what, uh, what, what are called the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And what the and those run from roughly chapter 42 all the way to chapter 53. And in those servant songs, um, God is describing, and sometimes the servant is describing himself, the the work of redemption that's going to be carried out through this figure, the servant. And Matthew is saying that the servant that these songs are about is Jesus Christ. And what Matthew does here in verses 18 through 21 is he quotes the first, the heart of the first servant song, the speaker is the father. And the servant that he's speaking about is his son, Jesus And this servant is the very heart of God. The story of the servant and the story of the heart of God in these verses is the same story. The way we know the heart of God, the way we know the heart of the Father, is by the story that he tells here. We're the audience, right? The whole world is the audience. Look, this is God the Father saying, Behold my servant, look at my servant whom I have chosen. Pay attention to him, think about who he is, let me tell you about him. He is my beloved, I love him. And my soul is well pleased in him. That sounds like Jesus' baptism, doesn't it? What the Father says at Jesus' baptism. And let me tell you about what I'm going to do for him. I'm going to put my spirit upon him. Well, what happened at Jesus' baptism? The spirit descended upon him. And what it, he's going to have a mission. I love him, I've chosen him, Uh, he's going to proclaim justice to all the Gentiles, that means all the nations, his ministry is not going to be limited to Israel, I'm going to put my spirit on him as the power of this mission, and I'm going to send him into the world to proclaim justice among all the nations. And let me tell you something else about him, the way he's going to carry that mission out is he is not going to be an argumentative, obnoxious draw attention to himself kind of servant. He's going to be a servant. He's, not going to be, he's going to conquer in a way that's unlike any other conquerors, right? He's not going to quarrel or cry aloud, and no one will hear any, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. In other words, he's not going to be a self-promoter. He's not going to get his own TV channel. He's not going to put himself on a throne on the earth. And the kind of people that he's going to move towards in all of his power, his worldwide power, these are the types of people that he will move towards. He will not overlook them. He will not discard them. He is not going to cut his losses any more than I cut my losses. You know, the shepherd, think about those shepherds. If I was a shepherd and I had, one, I had a bunch of sheep and I had one sheep that was in a pit, I would think really carefully about whether I ought to cut my losses and move on. You know those stories that Jesus tells in Luke 15? The story that he tells about the the shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one has wandered off and he leaves the 99 to get the one, right? That's a crazy story. That makes no sense. What kind of shepherd is that? It's a shepherd who hates lostness. It's a shepherd whose whole heart the woman loses nine, has nine coins, loses one. Who cares about the nine? I want the one! same thing here this shepherd is incredible he's not going to break a bruised reed he moves towards damaged and vulnerable people people the world passes over people the world doesn't have any use for that's going to be his mission like a sheep in a pit like a man with a withered hand what good are they It's going to be the focus of his ministry. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to continue to move toward bruised reeds and smoldering wicks until he triumphs. And he's going to set everything right. See, justice here, my friends, is don't think judicial justice. This is the idea, this is an image of everything that has been wrong being made right, which is the same, same idea as the Old Testament idea of shalom or peace. It's the same idea as rest from the end of Matthew 11. You see, Jesus is being declared by the Father to be everything, everything that the Sabbath was meant to point us to. His ministry is going to be about proclaiming the way God is going to make things right God's intention toward the world God's love for the world that has rebelled against him God moving toward the world in love and in mercy entering into the mess that we have made by our sin God of God's creation and God himself sending a servant appointing choosing a servant whom he loves empowering him by the Spirit sending him into the world not just to Israel but to the entire earth all the nations, every people group, sending him in to proclaim this message that there is hope, and there is hope only in God, and God is going to set right what man has made wrong. The cross is proof that he is going to fulfill that mission, and in that mission, there is going to be certain people, there's going to be a certain posture of heart that is drawn to that servant, and the The heart that is going to be drawn to a servant with that kind of mission is a a heart that's a bruised reed, a heart that's a smoldering wick. And you know, this servant, according to the Father, is never going to fail in his ministry because not only is he going to proclaim justice to the nations, he's going to, according to verse 20, proclaim it until he brings justice to victory. He will make all That sweeps my heart off its feet. God's heart is so beautiful. You know, reeds were used to measure things. And so a bruised reed or a broken reed was worthless. A wick. It's supposed to burn. It's supposed to give light. It's supposed to give off heat. A wick that smolders and only gives off smoke is useless. In a technical sense, right? Men and women and children who live in rebellion against God, who defy God, who ignore God, who push God to the periphery of their lives, what use are they to God? Let me put it this way. What use... What use was I to God as a sinner? And yet what does God do? He's not a discarder of people. He's not a cutter of his losses. Friends, you need to know that God's heart is this way, and you need to love him for it, and you need to see that in Jesus, right, you have the ultimate expression and proof that this is how God's heart is, is that he loves the world, that he loves justice, that he loves the nations, that he loves bruised and smoldering wicks, and that above all else, he loves his Son right? And so he wants us to pay attention to the Son. He wants us to hope in the Son. He wants us to find in Jesus the hope that our hearts long for. There's no comparison. There's no peer. You're not going to find it in your work. You're not going to find it in your achievements. You're not going to find it in money or in relationships. You're going to find it in one place, right? In his name, in his name, all the nations will hope. You know, we had a new members class today, and we admitted new members today, and you know what? But Those classes were full of Gentiles who hope in the name of Jesus, taught by by one who is a Gentile, right, or at least mostly a Gentile, who hopes in the name of Jesus. (laughs) This promise is being fulfilled in this room. Now, this is very practical. It's very practical in two ways, first for our assurance, and second for our witness, and let me close with these two applications. You know, you might say, okay, Francis, but you get so you like poetry, right? So no wonder you're moved by those verses. It, okay, I, I receive that, but I still want to say to you that this is so practical for you to see the heart of God in these two halves of this chapter. First, for your assurance. Why is it Friends, that that the Father wants us to behold the servant. Why is it that it matters to us to see to see how the Father responds to Jesus, to see what the Father thinks about Jesus, to see how the Father feels about Jesus—that He loves Him, that He's delighted in Him, that He He endorses His mission, that His mission. In the world with sinners is the story of the Father's own heart. Why does it matter for us? Why does God want us to eavesdrop, if you will, on His joy in the servant? Well, I'll tell you, it's very practical. So that when it's for this reason, so that when God calls you and me to trust in Jesus, when Jesus comes to us and says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, believe in my work for you on the cross, that when we embrace God wants us to see his delight in Jesus so that when we yield to Jesus, when we give our lives to Jesus, we can be assured that God takes pleasure in us in the same way that he takes pleasure in the Son whom he loves. That God approves us and is well-pleased in us when we are well-pleased in the Son with whom he is well-pleased. And so that is the ground of our assurance the Father's delight in the Son. Friends, if you don't see the Father's love for Jesus and His passion for Jesus' ministry, your assurance is much weaker than it ought to be. And that's true for a non-Christian. The Father's joy in Jesus is how you know that if you embrace the Jesus who pleases the Father, you yourself will also please the Father. And it also applies to our witness and our mission. You know, the Father just doesn't, want, just, doesn't just want us to look at the Son. He wants us to learn to sing about the Son with Him. He wants our song to be about Jesus as well, a song of our lives. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're a writer Whether you're an artist, whether you're a musician, whether you're a student, whether you're an athlete, whether you're a teenager, whether you're a parent, whether you're a spouse, whether you're a businessman, whether you're an employer, whether you're a retiree, whether you're an investor, it doesn't matter. In every one of those spheres of life, there is an essential calling by God to every Christian to make Jesus primary. And the way you and I, what's, it, it, and, and, you know, it's true for us as a church. What does the world need from us as a church? It's the same thing that, that the world needs from parents and children, that, that, that husbands need from wives, that employees need from employers, employers need from employees, that writers and artists need, uh, need, uh, that musicians need, it's the same thing, right? It's that is that we, in every one of those spheres, is that we have stepped into this delight of the Father for Jesus, and that we have paid, we're, spend, we're getting in as close an orbit to the Father's joy in Jesus as God will permit us to be over and over and over again, so that we're catching that delight, We're hearing it. It's being reinforced in our lives and then it's going to echo through our lives and that needs to happen because the world needs to know who the heart of God truly is. Let's pray. Father, would you grant us grace to do just that, to get closer and would you grant us grace to behold your Son in all of the delight that you have. In him, and how we thank you for sending him into the pit for us. We pray in Jesus' name.